Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, ClearCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates, and our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Hello, hello, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Keller, and today I am super jazzed because I have a couple of recruiters with me on the line, so listeners are really going to get a peek behind the curtain into what recruiters might be looking for and how cleared candidates can use some of the tips that we're going to chat about today as they navigate the job search or just passively networking with recruiters and weighing their options. So my first guest, Sam Pena, is a U.S. Army veteran who worked in intelligence and then turned to recruiting for industry and now supports talent acquisition under the government. We also have Bill Vortman, and he is a U.S. Marine Corps veteran, also worked Intel, and then more recently worked in talent acquisition under a couple of defense contractors. So really today, we are going to gain some insights from both sides of the recruiting national security coin. But before I start to grill you both with some questions, I do have to add that any of the content that you'll hear today are the opinions of our guests and not necessarily the government agencies or companies that they support. So thanks, guys, for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having us, Katie. Thank you. So both of you are in talent acquisition. I'm a former recruiter, so totally my love language. But one of you works for industry, the other for government, like I said in my intro. And Sam, you've supported both. So let's start with you. Any notable differences that candidates should be aware of, whether they're applying to a government position or a defense contractor? A big difference, I would say, is in the expectation of patience for the candidate. Much more patience required applying to federal positions just because of how the process works versus the private sector or defense companies that are more agile a lot quicker because they're typically hiring for revenue versus the government doesn't hire for revenue at all, in fact. So there's different levels of pressure there for recruiters working in those two different environments. How that translates to the candidate is the pace of how things are and maybe even high touch versus low touch recruiting experience. Typically high touch from the private sector, very high touch, I would say. Frequent contact if you have an excellent recruiter like Bill, I would imagine. A little bit less in the federal space just because of how the processes are are in place the technologies that we use that are different or sometimes lacking as compared to a regular company. I would say those are the two main overarching things. Candidates need to manage their expectations when it comes to timelines and really have a little bit of patience if they're applying to the government. So Bill, what about candidates as they're applying to maybe some of the defense contractors that you've previously supported? What should they keep in mind? Yeah, I suspect that the government hiring process is more uniform And that doesn't mean that industry hiring isn't regimented, but there's probably a lot more procedural variance between different companies. So if a candidate is applying at different companies, they need to take that into consideration. The process with one company is is probably different from the process at another. But also the most significant difference I see between government industry recruiting is that government recruits to fill vacancies and industry recruits to fill vacancies as well as future anticipated vacancies. So that could include like pre-contract award roles as well as, you know, pipelining candidates to account for attrition on a contract or, uh, you know, internal mobility if an employee creates a vacancy because they get promoted or they move to a different contract. So things like that. So it's important for someone seeking employment to know when they're talking to a recruiter, hey, is this a a live active vacancy or is this something that you're just keeping me in mind for? Absolutely. And yeah, I I think candidates 
really should sort of keep in mind that they do have the opportunity to apply with companies for that pre-contract award and submit their resume, submit an LOI, and really kind of expand their options and the job search. So great information. So let's like kind of move on. I love juicy stories, if you're willing to share. I know that when I was recruiting, there were do's and don'ts that candidates really do need to keep in mind when they're engaging with recruiters, whether they're just passively networking, reaching out on online or formally interviewing with a company or government agency. So Bill, let's start with you. Any notable stories that could shed light on maybe bad interactions that you've had with candidates that they should really avoid doing? Yeah, I've had people get mad at me because I've tried to contact them, you know, more than once. But I think that if you put your resume out there and a recruiter contacts you, but you're not interested, just tell them because they're going to appreciate knowing that they should just move on. And you're a lot less likely to get annoyed by continued follow-up attempts. So that's one example. But uh, other, I would say just be open and honest with your recruiter. You know, I had one case, there was a guy who was a candidate on one of the programs I was recruiting for, and the customer was facilitating a polygraph. And, you know, that's a big deal. So he was stressed out already from the prospect of taking the polygraph. He flew into town and he was staying at a hotel the night before, but, you know, somebody had thrown a brick through the back windshield of his his rental car that morning. So he comes out in the hotel parking lot and he sees that. He's already nervous and frazzled as it is. And then he, you know, drives to go take the polygraph with his busted rental car. Needless to say, he didn't do well on the, the polygraph. And, you know, you only have so many shots at that. You know, if he had just told me ahead of time, we could have easily rescheduled. So that's why I say, you know, be open and honest with your uh, recruiter and let them know what's going on. Great points. And that damn polygraph. I mean, if you get the opportunity to take it, definitely sort of methodically go through the steps. Don't study for the polygraph. But like you said, be open and honest with your recruiter because you don't want to kill your chances of getting one. So Sam, any stories that, that you could share? I think that there's some common things. And first, I want to I want to kind of note that as recruiters, I think I'm, I'm well aware of the issues that people come across. Like, you know, I get, I'll get the same messages that Bill will get like, Hey, stop contacting me or kind of, or even, even worse, just the, the whole, um, you know, ghosting. I try to, I try to sympathize sometimes as a candidate myself, as we all are at any given point in time, we've all applied to jobs. And even myself, I'll get emails from recruiters that, clearly they have never read my resume and it just kind of came up on some search somewhere and they'll just blanket email you. And, you know, they're probably using some program that just pastes your name in there on this, the same message that they're hitting up hundreds of people on. I get that. But one of the, the more common things I see is just if you're reaching out, if you have the initiative to actually reach out and cold call, I guess, a recruiter, I'll get folks who are like, Hey, do you have any jobs for me? <laughs> I see that all the time too. I mean, I wish it was like, hey, I saw this, this specific job on your website or whatever, and I'm interested. But it's typically a lot of folks just be like, hey, what do you have for me? Or like, what do you guys have for this? And I think that that's kind of going to guarantee almost a very low chance of, of response from any recruiter because, and especially at a company, you have so many requisitions, you're dealing with so many people that that kind of gets relegated to the bottom because you're not making that recruiter's life easier, which is kind of what your intent should be originally. Like a first phase one of application process is how do I get someone's attention as a human? And for a recruiter, I would recommend if you reach out to someone coldly is automatically attach your resume. Your resume must include your contact information. Some people don't have it in there for some reason. And then specifically state, hey, I saw X position. 
and I'm interested, briefly say I, I have X amount of experience and you know how it relates to the job. That will increase your chances exponentially. Just that simple, simple message. And I get it. People are looking for jobs. They're stressing out the application process in general or job searching is a stressful experience for a lot of people. And recruiters sometimes forget about that because this is what we do day in, day out. So it's not stressful per se. This isn't their life. Their life is doing something else professionally, which is not writing resumes. Generally speaking, that's one of the most basic things that I see frequently. I don't know what the solution is there. Maybe hopefully people will see this podcast, get some tips there. But yeah, that general statement. Hey, what do you have for me? I completely agree with that too, because we see it all the time. They're they're in a completely unrelated field. And I get it. I support the enthusiasm. But if you're looking for an Intel analyst position at the mid-level, for example, which requires four years of experience on average across whatever agency, and you've never done that, and all you've done were internships, whatever, let's just say on Capitol Hill, then um, that should be kind of common sense. Like you need to start a little lower. I think it goes back to sort of, well, my new New Year's resolution this year is just kind of giving people the benefit of the doubt, but also, again, managing your expectations. Like if you don't really qualify for something and you're, it's a total shot in the dark, maybe manage your own expectations. But I love how you said you, you, your intent should be to make a recruiter's life easier and, and really get their attention. And doing that, you just need to be specific about kind of what you're going after. Hey, I applied to this requisition number listed at this site. Let me know if I'm a good fit. Here's my resume or point me in the direction of the recruiter that's handling that requisition if maybe you aren't. So great tips about do's and don'ts of networking. Really appreciate those. I'd love to move on to sort of resume tips, especially for some of the younger candidates, greener candidates that might be interested in national security careers and sort of building out that resume. And I know that it's different when you're applying to a defense contractor as opposed to a federal agency. But Sam, let's start with you. Are there any like big overarching no-nos that you've seen in the past as you're sifting through all those resumes? Yeah. So there's several things. And this is what I tell people regularly, regardless of their skill level or years of experience, because most people are challenged when they have to write about themselves in a way that sells themselves. It's not something that comes naturally to a lot of folks. Starting with the first step. So the resume, basically, as you apply to a position, is your first phase. And the strategy for your first phase, which is essentially to get another person to notice you and initiate contacts, aka a recruiter in this case, is to get their attention. And so you need to have your contact, like I said, it sounds crazy, but you need to have your contact info on their email address, phone number. I see this all the time. People don't have it on there. I don't know why. It just makes life a little bit more complicated. And secondly, it's just how you write your experience. I generally like bulletized everything, even your summary paragraph. If you choose to have that bulletize it, how it's relevant specifically to the job. And what I tell people all the time, if they have, you know, writer's block, I guess, on how to write about their experience is I just say, this is probably what I would consider the best format of any bullet that you could write. And you can use it for anything. I did, essentially, generally speaking, I did X, X amount of times, which resulted in X, parentheses, hopefully something amazing, right? Make it sound great. And that's just quantifiable and quantitative data that you're using. That's going to answer any question that anybody would possibly have as to what your experience was. Also, you need to take into consideration that that recruiter, if they see your resume, is typically going to send it if they see that it's that it's relevant 
to a hiring manager for review. Sometimes there's questions back from the hiring managers like, oh, well, can you ask this person, you know, how many times they, I'm just going to generically use examples that Intel us. how many products did they author or how much time were they, did they spend on this specific problem set or customer? And you can really alleviate that back and forth, which sometimes might just get you declined because you're requiring too much work on that end versus maybe there's five other candidates that were very clear and concise that were just, you know, by human nature alone, elevate themselves by how they've, they've written about themselves in that process. So if you can write quantifiable and quantitative data in each bullet of your experience, you will lessen the, the, the desire or the need for the hiring manager or the recruiter to go back and forth trying to deduce what exactly it is that you did or didn't do or how much experience. Because in the private sector specifically, the government sets out requirements. Like they must have X, you know, four years of experience on this. They must have this. And those are non-negotiables in, a lot, in many cases. So they have to justify that information. So if you make their life easier by justifying it clearly in your bullets, that's going to be a good thing, a very good thing. You're going to make your life, everybody's life a lot easier, which is really the intent up until you get to an actual interview. Your, your focus as a candidate is to make everybody's life that's touching your resume as easy as possible by way of the information that you provide and the way that you provide it that's clear and concise and quantifiable. I love that. It really goes back to just making everyone's life easier. And so, Bill, I'm not sure you definitely, from my experience, see that on the defense contracting side. But what about, you know, resume tips from you? And I'd love to hear on the industry side, does AI really play a huge role in some of the contractors that you've supported? And how, how can people, again, get their resume to the top of that pile? Touching on AI, I'm not so sure that plays a huge part. I think that recruiters that are actively searching for you, you know, they may use Boolean search logic or a smart search to find you. And that's probably the extent of where AI will come into play. For the most part, you know, as long as you're concise on your resume, which you should be, just like Sam said, then, you know, they're going to be searching for the skill sets that their customers are asking for. And so they'll find you that way. As far as, you know, big no-nos I've seen, Sam mentioned this already, and it is surprising how often this happens. Don't forget to include your contact info on your resume. To take it a step further, something else I would recommend is don't put contact information on your resume that you don't want people to use. This could be maybe your current employer's office number or a work email address where you currently work. Don't use a phone number if you're not likely to be the only person who will answer. You know, someone might list a, a landline, they have one for whatever reason, and you know, you might have a family member answer. You just want to be the one who has 100% of the interaction with that recruiter. So those would be my recommendations for right off the bat. In keeping with that, I would also say don't put your home address on your resume. It's just not necessary. I think it can contribute to potential geographic bias. If somebody thinks maybe you live too far away from the work location, you know, they might not reach out to you at all. I haven't seen this happen, but there's a potential that it could contribute to compensation bias also. These resumes are going outside of talent acquisition and, and being used by other people elsewhere too. So, you know, what if somebody looks up your home value and thinks maybe you're too expensive for a given role and they don't contact you? What if they think you might be desperate to take anything? You're going to have to provide your home address when you apply, but your resume is going to be shared with decision makers elsewhere. So it's just a best practice to avoid that kind of potential bias. Lastly, I would say 
don't list unnecessary qualifications too. Like if you're applying for a job as a cleared network engineer, for example, it doesn't matter that you qualified as an expert with an M4, you know, things like that. And I, I see that happen a lot with transitioning military veterans. They put stuff that's just not pertinent to the position, you know, unless it's a deployed position, but you know, that's, that's something separate. I've seen and I've heard of people having issues like, let's just say that you're transitioning, you're leaving the military out of San Diego and you're trying to get over here to the major agencies, whatever. So Northern Virginia, Maryland, DC, but your home address is listed as San Diego, your con- your phone number is California, all of it is kind of Cali-centric and you're just kind of randomly applying. Not to say that everybody won't get it, but you should try making people's life easier. If that's the case, put in, you are getting out and you're willing to relocate to the specific area of wherever it is that you're looking for your job at. Because you don't know who's at the other end. You don't know the recruiter's experience. What if they're like, maybe this recruiter handling these requisitions is like a junior recruiter and isn't familiar with people transitioning out of the military and how that works. And they just assume that the likelihood of you leaving California is low. Like you don't want to go or whatever. Like it could be a waste of time. Like take out as much of the hypothetical bias you could possibly get from another person looking at your resume by being clear as to what your intention is. And on the other note, for non-military entry level, I guess, fresh college grads or low experience folks that are kind of paranoid or worried about like, oh, my resume is not too long enough. And they kind of have, you know, they go on Microsoft Word and look at like the 10,000 different resume formats that they have there that are crazy looking with colors and lines and stuff. All of that is fluff. And so I would recommend if you do not have a resume or if you want to clean it up, in a very easy to read format is just go look at, honestly, Georgetown has further graduates on the perfect format. I think there's a couple other schools that do it as well, but it's easy there. It's public information. You can go there, look it up and just copy that format. That I think is a very, if you haven't seen it before, it's very clear, very professional looking, no extra bells and whistles that are unnecessary and just very, it's just very nice. If you're at that level where you need that help, and even if you are even more advanced in your career and your resume seems like it's become like this conglomeration of information that's kind of scattered and disorganized and just kind of hurtful to the eyes, you can look at that and use it as a reference and clean it up a bit, streamline it. Writing about yourself doesn't mean that you have to write 20, 30 pages. It needs to be concise. So that's another resource that I recommend to people to use, which is really great. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's a good reminder, like for folks that maybe are more advanced in your career, you've been looking at this document for some time and it may be good to get some outside eyes. And, you know, guys, that's so surprising to me that folks are not listing their contact information. And I kind of get it just because they're posting their resume in different places. And so maybe they make the assumption that like, okay, this recruiter is just going to reach out on the platform where my resume is, but list that contact information. And the other thing I would note is Check your junk if you like use a Gmail. Sometimes like my personal accounts, like some folks end up in junk. So if you are throwing out applications, make sure that you're checking in every place that a recruiter might be trying to contact you. Definitely. Yeah. The Security Clearance Careers podcast. So obviously security clearances are a part of our work and a hot commodity for folks that maybe have lost it. So even though clearance processing times are way, way down, which is incredible from what we've seen over the last decade within security clearance policy, 
any tips for obtaining one for our younger, maybe studio audiences, or like I said, those who have lost it? So Sam, you go ahead and go first. This is a big issue. This is a very big issue. Let's just start with people that do not have a clearance want to get into cleared work. And there are, let's just say, two or three traditional avenues, right? So you can apply to a federal job and get a clearance. If it's Intel, you can literally go to USA Jobs, type in 0132, which is the series for Intel Ops Specialists, and see all of the Intel positions open across most of the federal agencies that use USA Jobs and apply to, you know, entry level. So GG or GS7s through 9s kind of range. That's one way, which you should all do. I mean, if you're listening to this, you should do that. Other way is to join the military <laughs> and get an Intel job, which is what I did and what Bill and I, well, Bill and I did. So we were both human CI, and in Bill's case, professionals. So that's how we obtained our clearance and our experience. And thirdly, there are companies out there that will sponsor a new clearance for you, depending on the work. Typically, it's not for Intel true, like all the way through, because it's, it's all about supply and demand. So if Intel analysts, typically those jobs won't sponsor clearances as much because there's a high number of just, let's just say, Intel analysts leaving the military per year. So there's not that much of a need for that. And there's also people that just move around, especially if you're in the D.C. area, people bounce from job to job. So there is a a large supply of these folks around. So it doesn't necessitate a company to spend the money to sponsor you or even write it into a contract for the government to pay them to do it. And then there are other companies out there that are supporting different agencies, not maybe specifically Intel, but they would require you a clearance and they will sponsor you. And you kind of, I think a lot of those contracts are well aware of their turnover rates of people get in there, they do their job, they get their clearance, and then they move on. Once they get their clearance, they move on. I've seen it happen in in different ones. There was like a legal contract that I once supported, you know, DOD Pentagon work. I forget what it was, declassification work, whatever. Everybody's aware. These are junior level folks coming in. They don't have a clearance. They'll get a clearance and they're likely to leave once they get their clearance because now the door's are a little bit more open to them for opportunities for other work once you get that TS or whatever. That is something to look out for. And it's kind of complicated because I've helped people that don't have clearances kind of like help them like, where do I find these companies that sponsor? And it's not so clear cut, but they're out there definitely here in this area supporting different customers, mostly DOD centric. And I don't know how it works for in Bill's world, but I'm sure there's other needs. Like I think that very high demand positions, probably cyber related or link like some difficult languages, they're they're more apt to like write this in the contract to sponsor someone because the demand is so high and the supply is so low. But generally speaking, in like a standard Intel analyst at whatever level, um, you won't see a lot of those. So you got to start off a little lower to get your clearance and go that route. And it is what it is, I guess, <laughs> generally speaking. Sure. I know that for some folks, uh, I used to support a contract at the USPTO. They would easily sponsor for, say, a public trust just because the the timeline isn't as lengthy for that billet to remain vacant. So, Bill, what about you? Any advice for those that are looking to get a clearance? Yeah, I think Sam touched on a lot of it. I mean, the traditional methods of getting your clearance or kind of reviving a clearance that's no longer active, you know, active duty military, military reserves, internships, 
especially with the government, especially, you know, internships with government intelligence agencies or internships with industry companies that have the government as a customer. Sometimes they can, you know, work a, a, an initial security clearance. Also, as Sam alluded to, you know, there are certain security contracts out there that provide physical security or escort duty, things like that. You know, I've, I've seen people who had, uh, you know, maybe a TSSCI clearance in the military, but, you know, they hadn't been in access for, you know, 10 years and, you know, they aren't going to be able to get on a cleared contract, but they've taken one of these security contracts that have the ability to kind of fast track a reinvestigation and then, you know, boom, they're cleared and, and working again. Granted, there's almost always some type of service obligation associated with that. So you don't want to run afoul of that employer. There could be some type of financial clawback, but, you know, those are ways to get back in the game. I do think it's important to understand there's a point of nuance here. You know, a company in industry can't grant you a security clearance. Only the government can. So if you're interested in getting a clearance or upgrading a clearance through employment with a government contracting company, their ability to facilitate that all depends on their government customer's willingness to do so. And so that's something that can vary greatly between customers and contracts. Just ask your recruiter if it's possible and you can kind of go from there. For anybody listening, just like a little tip is as you search for jobs, maybe in this area specifically, like those program analyst positions that are supporting like, I don't know, something at the Pentagon or the DOD, whatever, by way of like a company, small businesses, et cetera, they could possibly have the opportunity to sponsor a new clearance if you've never had one. And in those cases, they're doing it through the customer that that program is supporting. Right. I mean, the customer is authorized, like, yes, we will let you bring someone on and work the clearance process from zero to getting the clearance versus bringing someone on at full performance, which in the cleared environment means that you must have an active clearance from the first day. Another example where we might see this happening is where a company has a contract with a government agency and they have a need for a certain language capability. And, you know, it's just not likely that, you know, there's a cleared individual that speaks that language at a native level. So, you know, you have to make somebody. And usually that means you take a native speaker and they initiate a clearance investigation from start to finish, and then they can employ them on the contract. So the the customer is the one who acknowledges that, yeah, okay, we have this need. We know it's not likely we can pick from an already cleared workforce. So in this case, you know, for this program and this given role on this program, we'll sponsor an investigation and and grant the clearance. Well, and I, I love that you both have mentioned sort of the supply and demand, and it's really important for potentially clearable candidates to do that research, not only on the nuances of the security clearance process, just so you can manage your expectations, you can get your ducks in a row and try to alleviate any sort of roadblocks that may prevent you from getting the clearance faster. But taking a look at current events and what maybe the supply is low on, and if it's a job that's interesting to you, knowing that there aren't a ton of candidates, maybe convincing or encouraging a contractor to invest in you and and gain that security clearance is, is a little more likely. So I love that. I love all these little nuggets of information you guys are providing candidates. I mean, anyone listening, I feel, is going to be a little more equipped as they navigate sort of the job-seeking process within national security careers. So lastly, you both have served, and it is freezing in my home office. And so I want to hear any, like, 
your favorite location while you were serving. And again, since you did serve, any tips for the veteran or transitioning audience as they sort of are networking with recruiters? Since you're freezing, I'll tell you, one of my favorite duty stations was probably Hawaii. And uh, that was my first duty station. I loved it there. there. There's kind of a joke that's probably universal in the military that the two best duty stations are the one you came from and the one you want to go to. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think there may be some truth to that. But, you know, I look back at everywhere I've been stationed, you know, Oconus and Conus on both sides of the country. There are so many things I love about every place I've been. I'm fortunate to have enjoyed that ride. You know, as far as recruiting goes, I'll, I'll say, you know, most people who are transitioning, you know, they don't know what they don't know. And a good recruiter has walked the path that you're on, and they're going to help these people see those blind spots. In addition to that, you know, networking is important. So follow companies, connect to recruiters, talk to people who are working where you want to work and learn about the company, learn about the customer, learn about the contracts. And remember that recruiters, they're going to advocate for you. If it turns out that you don't meet the qualifications for a specific role they have in a contract, you know, ask them to share your resume because they probably have friends at other companies and, you know, they're happy to help you out. Sure. So Sam, serving, favorite place, and also how has serving really helped you see the full landscape of the hiring process within the intelligence community and DOD? Yeah. So uh, my favorite place, I would say, I guess would be the last where where I left the military from, which was uh, Tacoma, Washington. And I've been there. I've been back several times to go to like military recruiting events, career fairs with hiring our heroes out of Fort Lewis or JBLM. Every time I go back, I'm just in awe of just like the natural beauty of that area of the Pacific Northwest. There are some not so great places that the army can send you to in the, in the States. So I was lucky that I spent quite some, a lot of time there in the Pacific Northwest and exploring that there's, if you like the outdoors, it's beautiful. It's just uh, really nice. And then I would say secondly would be Arizona. Also just really, really nice uh, visually. Uh, and if you like the dry heat, great. So I really enjoyed those, those two places and being deployed, I think, because I could actually do my job because you can't interrogate anybody in the States <laughs> or do Intel operations at that level in the, in the States versus being deployed in that, in that era uh, that we were deployed in and leaving the military. And I tell this to military folks all the time, because it is a difficult transition. If you're coming, especially here, you know, the foundation of what I'm saying is all like Intel centric. So the IC centric, Obviously, you can leave the military and work all kinds of different jobs. I'm not too familiar with the supply world, like if you're a logistician and doing that kind of work. So mostly I'm talking to folks that are interested in cleared work as it relates to the IC. So if you're coming to this area from the military and there's a lot, you know, there's what, 3,000 or so companies hiring out here for the IC. The biggest challenge that I've seen and I saw myself when I left the military, you have to quickly realize and learn as a former military member, and this sounds kind of rough, but you're now in the real world. The military world, which is designed for you to succeed on average, is pretty much non-existent. You need to forget about that. So if you're a military person that's coming up on ETSing or retiring, whatever, and coming into, quote, the real world as civilian to the workforce, the days of getting that sort of special treatment, I guess, in the military, which is hard to believe that it happens, but it does. It's kind of it's kind of over. You have to really be cognizant of that and look out for yourself and your best interests. Because I've seen it. I've been I've seen it myself as when I got out and talking to companies when I was looking for jobs to come here to the to the area is that the salary negotiations are tough because you've never done that before. And most definitely 
there is a high probability that your lack of knowledge on how to negotiate salaries and your experience in this geographic area will be used not to your advantage. That's just the reality. That's how it works. It sounds tough and kind of unfortunate, but that's that's what I believe to be true. So you need to kind of readjust your lens of how you view the world, how you're going to see your professional development, everything, because you need to take a much more proactive approach to moving up the chain, if that's what it is, or getting, you know, achieving your goals professionally, because people joke that in, you know, in the army, you're just another number, not so as it relates to the civilian world. Now you're really just another number. And when it comes to like working at a company, whatever the work it is, great that you're doing good work and you're supporting national security or whatever the problem set is, awesome. But at the end of the day, you're on the books and you're providing a revenue stream for that company because they're billing the government for your work. So different approach. You know, in the military, the government isn't profiting off of you, you know, monetarily speaking, for your work. And the system is designed to help you if you if to get what you need to be done, to get trained, to to excel at your job, to be part of a team that is highly efficient. But you know, working for jobs as a regular person, different it's a different ballgame. That is one of the major things that I tell people from the military coming out. I went through it, I saw it, and now switching to being a recruiter, I see it. And I think had someone told me that when I left, maybe my learning curve would have been much shorter in terms of achieving what I wanted to do when I came to this area and looking at different jobs and opportunities and whatever else. The military's got career planners as an MOS, but that doesn't exist in the civilian world, too. So it really does become a choose-your-own-adventure. There's pros and cons to this. You know, one of the biggest pros is you get to drive your career where you want it to go. You know, the con is that you don't have a lot of help trying to guide you along the way. And that's where, you know, good recruiters really come into play because we can kind of shepherd you through the process, at least to an extent, and, and help you. And the veteran community is strong. So, you know, we're generally willing to do that. So just ask the question. Even like the, the, that question that people get all the time, thanks for applying, what's your salary range? You ask that for someone from the military, they've never been asked that before. If they like joined when they were 18 and left when they were, I don't know, 25 or 30 or, you know, retired, when have they ever had to say, what's my desired salary range for this position? Right. Never. And that is a trick question. I'll be clear. I don't like to use it per se. And if I do use it, I'll explain as to why I'm specifically asking that question, because they may be, they're overqualified. And I'm just trying to make sure that I can actually meet what they actually want. But that's not the norm. The norm is that they'll get asked that so that someone can figure out how low can they go to seal the deal with them. Perfect example of someone not looking out for your best interest. So you need to be aware of that and how to answer those kind of questions and think about that. If someone were to ask me, hey, Sam, what should I do if X company asks me what's my salary range? And maybe I'll get a lot of heat for this. I will tell them, do not answer with a salary range, period. Don't say, I don't know, my, my range is like 50 to 60. You're not going to get 60. <laughs> why, why would a company do that if they, can, they already know that they can get you in for the, for the, for the low 50s? So those are little things that happen that are used, you know, just at your disadvantage because you just don't know that that information. And if you were to talk to someone who's been here for a decade, who's worked at several companies, they might have the same response. Like if you ask them for advice as to how to negotiate a salary, is to probably not provide that question with a salary range. Just say, well, my target is X number, 55.5, whatever. 
Right. And I'm sure it's difficult sort of being in a recruiting position where, like you said, you're you're staffing, you know, contracts or, you know, as a government contractor. And you also have lived that that life through the military transition. And so you're also trying to advocate for your candidates. But I, I love choose your own adventure. As you are transitioning through the military, you are now in the driver's seat. But it, it always helps sometimes to have a co-pilot as you navigate through those things. And so I always recommend to when I was counseling folks transitioning out of the military, get a mentor, get a lot of mentors, get mentors that have lived through the process and even, you know, peer mentoring folks that are living through it as well. It can just be good to have a sounding board. But gentlemen, I really enjoyed this conversation and I know that listeners did as well. So I really appreciate you both for joining me today. This is Katie Keller, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of ClearedCast. For more information on career and recruiting advice, visit news.clearancejobs.com. This podcast is brought to you by Deloitte Government and Public Services, the future of cyber risk solutions powered by you. Work, learn, and serve your community while shaping the solutions of tomorrow. Join Deloitte Government and Public Services Cyber Risk Team. Explore careers at Deloitte.com slash GPS careers. That's Deloitte.com slash GPS careers.